Good morning. Isn't it a wonderful contradiction that we know that our Savior suffered and bled and died for us so that we can experience the joy of knowing Him? Have you ever met someone who loves stirring the pot, so to speak? Well, if you have, and by your laughter, I know you have, you're going to either love or hate these 14 verses from Nehemiah. Because as we read, you're going to picture people like those who are stirring the pot in these verses. There's an old adage, no good deed goes unpunished. There always seems to be some kind of negative consequence for doing good. And sometimes it comes at the hands of others. Every good work will be opposed. We know that Satan is one who uh, who prowls around looking for whom he may devour. For those who have been here at Amelia Baptist Church for any length of time, we find it both refreshing and amazed at what God is doing among us. And when we see God at work and we join him in that, Satan will do his best to oppose that work. What God is doing in your life and in the life of the church. Today we're going to read a few verses from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah in chapter 4. We're going to see some strategies that Satan uses to halt God's work in his church and possibly in your life. Now I've said something like this before. When we speak of the enemy, we're not speaking about one another. It is uh, it's a sad thing when people can worship together and across the aisle is a person that you are at conflict with. I'm sure that God is sad over those things. Being human, thoughtlessly say something that is discouraging. We are here to edify and to uplift one another, even when we talk to our children about joy and smiles and laughter. We are here to stir up the spirit in each one so that we can become more of what God has called. Now, there have been times that I may have spoken in a way that discouraged you. And that was not my intention, and I regret it if I did. Though we have been here over 28 years, and some of you are brand new, you should be grateful you didn't know me 43 years ago. If for no other reason, Pam is a saint, because she has stayed with me 43 years. 
because there was a time that I was not gracious. Or I didn't want to be. I thought my job was to tell you the truth, whether it was in love or not, whether it hurt or not, whether it made you happy, which it probably didn't. But was the that the Holy Spirit corrects us and grows us in Christ. My prayer is that the Spirit of God will be more and more in control of my life and yours, your hearts and our minds, and that we too would be instruments of His grace, His love and peace. Would you please stand as we read about these enemies of Nehemiah. Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall." Hear, O my God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to build a wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open spaces, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked 
and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. The first book that I read by C.S. Lewis was The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, it is enlightening, amusing, and it's brilliantly written. It's a novel. An older, wiser devil named Screwtape writes tips and thoughts on how his younger and eager nephew, Wormwood, can win the soul over of a young man. Now, the young man throughout the book is the patient. The enemy is God. The father below is the head of all demons. You see, Lewis is teaching in reverse He offers the opinions, the philosophies, and the attacks from a demonic point of view. He called this style diabolic ventriloquism. Now, between letters one and two, the patient becomes a Christian. So here are some of the themes that Lewis picks up on, on how Satan wants to discourage us or turn us back from the truth. Letter one, make the patient obsessed with ordinary life. It is filled with obstacles that will try our emotions. How many times have you tried to talk with someone about Christ, but there's no interest because they're consumed with work, they're consumed with family, They're consumed with finances. They're consumed with medical issues. Letter two. Make the patient disillusioned with church by pointing out people who are strange and hypocritical. And then, as a disillusioned person, he will think himself better than others who go to church. Now, our associate Adam often tells us that people come here and they felt strange at other churches, but they feel at home here. So we are a church full of strangers that are strange. And my response to that is that God called us to be a peculiar people. So we're living up to the expectation. But we don't mean to be hypocritical. We're just human who makes mistakes. In letter seven, Screwtape tells Wormwood, keep the patient ignorant of the resistance, that means the devil against God, by making him an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist who regards his view as the most important cause in Christianity. Now, remember, this was written right around World War II. And that was the big Christian political conflict at that time. 
Do we engage against evil or are we pacifists? And what the devil wants to do is to make these issues more important than the real issue. We need to keep our eyes on the real enemy and not the political ping pong that goes on in our nation's capital. Letter 10. Don't underestimate the power of very little sins because the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The reason we confess our small sins to one another is we're not at all going to confess our big sins to one another. You remember what Ravi Zacharias reminds us, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than what you want to pay. In letter 16, encourage the patient to church hop. How many of our friends continue to float from one place to another so they don't have to build relationships with other people and to come to hear and understand the truth of the gospel. It takes time to build relationships and a personal accountability. And most of us know, without lasting relationships with people who really know us, that we're only interested in our own points of view. The last one I'll mention from letter 23. Encourage him to embrace the historical Jesus and treat Christianity as simply a means of political science and social justice. Now, most of us don't understand what he means by the historical Jesus, but there was a movement at the turn of the century, and it was going pretty full steam in the 40s, that you shouldn't look at Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but you should just look at him as a good teacher of moral philosophy, moral political theory, and things of that nature. And even today, we see that going on. You see, the identity and economic ideas of Marxism, whether they're baptized in Christian terminology or not, is still Marxism. And the end of Marxism is the end of believing in God. Now, one quote that I came across by Lewis, and I didn't know it earlier, but upon reflection, really addresses something that's been a part of my life in a negative way. The older demon tells his protege, There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading the human's mind against God. You see, God wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business as demons is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Now, here's what he's saying. As Christ followers, we have clear instructions on how we ought to live our lives. But so many times we worry about what's going to happen to us if we do the right thing, if we follow Christ. We're concerned with those unintended consequences. 
Many times we lose sight of what God wants to accomplish in our lives because we think about the consequences. See, the question is really this. Will we trust God as we obediently follow Christ no matter what happens to us? Are we more concerned with what God wants us to be and wants us to do than what's going to happen to us if we are? So what are some things that we can learn from this chapter? Like so many attacks, it begins with words. It's kind of a psychological warfare is what you see in these first verses in 14. What are these feeble Jews doing? He has a bunch of questions. Basically, he's saying, you're not wall builders. You're as feeble as old men and women and little children. The task is beyond you. Will they sacrifice? In other words, are they going to be more religious? Do they think that's going to help them? Do they think that offering a few sacrifices in the temple is going to be magic somehow? Isn't that true? How some people think if they go to church or do the right things in church, that magically their life is going to somehow get better. Will they revive out of the heaps of burned stones a wall? And Tobiah, love his analogy, uh, this word for fox is little fox. It means a pup. Maybe it weighs maybe a pound or, or not. And what he's saying is their wall is going to be so unstable and so bad that this little puppy could climb up on the wall and the whole wall will come down. Psychological warfare has always been a part of war. But the point is to discourage. And discouragement is universal. I don't need your help to be discouraged. And thank you for not participating. None of us are immune from discouragement. It reoccurs. There's no immunity. You can't take a shot and say, okay, I'm never going to be discouraged again. We will become discouraged over and over again. And it's contagious. Don't you just love being around discouraged people? Misery loves company. They love to knock on your door and tell you what's what. And you know, it spreads like so many diseases. It just takes a little casual contact. And then you wonder, what happened to your joyful day? We need to remember that the word Satan means accuser. And he won't accuse you of real sin. He'll accuse you of things that you thought and did that you question and you can't do anything about. And you just go over and over in your minds. If I only had done this, if I'd only had done that, I wonder what that person's thinking. I'm wondering if they made that decision because of something that I did. And you just... It just eats you alive. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it clear what you've done so you can confess what you've done, so you can have joy again. Every time we read about Sambalat, he is standing against the work of God. He's rejecting, he's re, uh, ridiculing everything that Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. 
Someone has said that the word ridicule is the language of the devil, and it's true. Goliath ridiculed the people of God. He ridiculed David. The people and the soldiers mocked and ridiculed Jesus at his trial. Every question that is asked is a statement of ridicule and sarcasm. I hope that that is not a part of our normal conversations. (laughs) What's interesting is that they don't stop with words. They're continuing to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so they decide that now we're going to take up arms. See, at some point, the enemy, Satan, when he sees that words of ridicule and jeering and sarcasm and accusations aren't working, then there can be physical issues. Physical harm that can come. In verses 7 and 8, And when Sambalad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. The reason all these people are mentioned is they are coming from the north, they're coming from the south, they're coming from the east, and they're coming from the west. Warren Wiersbe makes an interesting observation. God's people sometimes find it difficult working together. But the people of the world have no problem uniting against the work of God. Sometimes discouragement doesn't come from the outside. Sometimes it comes from the inside. In verse 10... It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By themselves, they will not be able to build a wall. The people of God, Judah, is where, I mean, that is their hub. That's, that's like the last tribe that's supposed to be full of energy. They're the ones who are supposed to be faithful. And now they're losing heart. And now they're talking among themselves. We can't do this. It's, it's just, just impossible. You know, when you get tired and fatigued, it's easy to get discouraged. That's when those thoughtless words come out sometimes, isn't it? Said there's too much rubble, too much rubbish. If we were to apply this in our lives, and you really want God to... Make a change in your life and to get your life straightened up. How much rubbish is there? How many burned, crumbling stones are left in your life because of the past? And you look at it and you go, I can't make anything out of this. Even if I could put that rubble And start building my life again. A little fox could come by. And destroy it. What 
kind of distractions keep us from building a holy life? And remember what this wall in Jerusalem represents. It means to be set uh, set apart for the glory of God. That's what a holy life is, to be set apart for the glory of God. I was talking with someone just this week and... He was mentioning how his mind is just not at ease in his mind. And then the truth came out. Now, this isn't the only thing. And we're friends. Basically, I'm watching too much news. Watching too much news. And so we talked about the verse in the New Testament that says, think on these things. Those things which are true. Those things which are noble. Think on these things. So what rubble is in your life that's pressing you? What trials are you suffering? Yes, maybe from past decisions your walls have been demolished and now you are seeking to build those walls back up in your life but you see the rubble and you don't know how you're going to be able to do it well the truth is here's the truth what the accusers said about the people you're feeble you know what the new testament does with that blows it up The New Testament says, in my feebleness, in my weakness, Christ is made strong. You see, if if it's left up to us to build our lives back together again, there's going to be a lot of foxes that's going to tear down our walls. But that's not who we are to count on. It's Christ who rebuilds our life. We come to Christ and old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. That's the process of sanctification. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in us, not what we do for Him. The last tool that I see in these verses is fear. Verse 14, And I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Fear. My life has been full of fear. And it's kept me back. It has. I am so grateful that I have been surrounded by men through the decades who have built up confidence, not in me, but in in Christ in me. Not that I have confidence in myself. I am feeble. (laughs) I don't want to be the one to build my life back up from the ruins. I want him to do that. He is the one who is our refuge and strength. We we sang about that in all the songs earlier in the service. You know, we, we need to be careful what we pray for. 
I'm sure you've heard about the story in the jungles of Africa. A man was being pursued by a hungry lion and he could feel that lion's breath right on the back of his neck. And so he just threw out a prayer to God, Lord, make that lion a Christian. And within a few seconds, this man, he couldn't feel that the heat of the lion back on his neck. And he had enough courage to turn around and he saw the lion on his knees praying. And he thought, God answered my prayers. And so he got close enough to the lion to hear what he was praying. And he said, bless, O Lord, this food that I'm about to receive. The most important part of this scripture is the prayer. It's not a prayer of vengeance. It looks like that, but it's not really. In his prayer, Nehemiah is reminding the Lord that these enemies, and we'll just say Satan, has come against you and your reputation. When Satan attacks the church that names Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ's reputation that's at stake. How we live our lives. It's more about his reputation if we call ourselves Christians than even the unintended consequences about the terrible choices that we may make. He's reminding God that the insults are against God. Do you know the reason that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? It's not so much that he hates you. Don't take it personally. He hates God. And you represent Christ here on earth. He wants you to fail and he wants me to fail because he wants God to fail. John Piper wrote ten, a list of ten strategies that Satan uses. It's a good article. Number one, Satan lies. And we believe the lies. He blinds the minds of those who don't believe. How often have we tried to talk to someone about Christ and they just can't see the beauty? He masquerades as costumes of light and righteousness. He's all in the churches. He looks great. He does signs and wonders. He tempts us to sin. He plucks the word of God out of our hearts and chokes the faith. He causes some sickness and some disease. He's a murderer. He fights against those who share the gospel. And he accuses us before God. All these are illustrated in Scripture. The most important part of this chapter is our prayer life. Our prayer should be that God's glory is seen and manifested in our lives.
and in the life of this church. At the time it was completed in 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was going to be the longest suspension bridge in the world. During the first phase of the project, 23 men fell to their deaths in the water. Things were going from bad to worse because they had no safety devices, and so they decided to make some changes. They reorganized and they built a large net under where the men were working. It cost a lot of money. It took a lot of time. But ask the men who fell, the ten men who fell into the net, was it worth it? And I read that um, they completed the task ahead of time because the men no longer feared to do the work. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your refuge and strength? Do you believe that he is the one who upholds you with his right hand? If so, then we don't need to fear the consequences of being and doing what God's called us to be and to do. And for those who don't know this great God, all I just say is look at Jesus. Just look at him. Not as an example of a great philosopher, as a great teacher, but he was the Son of God who made himself a servant all the way to the cross so that we could have the joy of being in his presence. What else are you going to do with your conscience and the sin that tangles up your feet and mixes in your mind the things that you want to do? Behold, all things are new. Old things are passed away. And it's not just fire insurance. He makes you new. He changes the way we think. He changes the way our desires, what we want in life. And it's because of His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we have so many things to confess and we have so many things to be thankful for. But we're most thankful for your grace. And that even though our lives have been torn down and our lives look like burned stones. You put us back together again. And you build us stronger than we've ever been. And then you keep us. And you hold us fast. Father, we thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.